Our second Bible reading is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Please do keep that page open so we can all look closely at what God is saying to us in his word. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God's spirit to teach us. In Luke 24, two of Jesus' disciples say to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? We pray, Father, that their experience would be ours this morning. Would the scriptures be opened to us by the Spirit of Christ? And would our hearts burn within us? Amen. In the earliest days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the US State Department and Ukraine's own intelligence network agreed that Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, was himself a prime target they thought Russia would attempt to assassinate Zelensky and his family. And so the United States offered to fly the Zelenskys to safety. On Saturday, February 26th of this year, Zelensky replied to that offer with the now famous words, the fight is here, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. In the months since, Zelensky hasn't changed course, he's stayed in Ukraine, resisting Russia's attack while urging friendly nations to provide as much military support as possible. In a poll conducted in Ukraine in late June, President Zelensky's approval rating among Ukrainians was as high as 91%. It seems true to say that Zelensky is living in a way that's worthy of his calling. He was chosen by his people to serve as their president they called him to that office, and he's lived a life, so far as we can tell, worthy of that calling, rising to the challenges of wartime leadership against a cruel and brutal op opponent. Well, according to verse 1 of our passage today, Christians also have a calling. And just as the people of Ukraine want President Zelensky to act in a way that's worthy of his calling, so our Heavenly Father wants us to live lives worthy of our calling. The calling in view in verse 1 is our calling to follow Jesus. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he literally called people to follow him. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus sees James and John sitting in a fishing boat, mending their nets, Mark tells us, immediately Jesus called them. 
And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We're now in a different period of salvation history. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and so he can't call people in the same way that he called James and John. But Jesus is still calling people to follow him. When his message is heard, and the Spirit gives a person faith in what he or she is hearing, that person has been called by Jesus just as effectively as John and James were called on the shores of Lake Galilee. If you've been a Christian all your life, you may not remember when you were called, but it happened. In Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, there are five divine actions listed, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Those five divine actions are sometimes called the golden chain of salvation. God carries out each of them, each link in the chain, for every saved person. And as you heard when I read out the list, calling is there in the golden chain. It's the third of the five gold links. It's something that happens through the power of God for every real Christian. Now, if you look down to verse 1, you'll see that Paul speaks of the calling to which you have been called. So we've been called to a calling. In other words, when Jesus calls a person by his Spirit, that call sets in motion a whole way of life, a calling. Everyone called by Jesus to follow him is called to a calling, a way of life with commands to obey, responsibilities to fulfill, and expectations to meet. This is a general calling for all Christians, not a specific calling. Sometimes people might say they've been called to be a gymnast or an engineer. Maybe they have, but that's not what Paul is talking about in verse 1. He's talking about the way of life all Christians are called to. We have the same commands to obey, the same kinds of responsibilities to fulfill, and the same expectations to meet. And how good it is in God's sight when our lives fit that calling, when our lives are worthy of that calling. How good it is when our lives match that calling like a train fitting the tracks it's supposed to run along. The Bible commentator F.F. Bruce describes Paul's appeal in verse 1 as a principle to guide in every situation. So we can always ask ourselves, would doing X be in keeping with my calling? Or would doing X be a derailment from my calling? Verse 1 is a principle to guide us in every situation. But Paul has one particular application of the principle in view. Unity. Living a life worthy of our calling will mean, according to verse 3, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity has been on Paul's mind throughout this letter to the Ephesians. It's the big theme of the letter. And here it is once again in verse 3 of this morning's passage. Christians living lives worthy of their calling will make every effort 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit. For the rest of the sermon, we're going to look at three different features of Paul's appeal for unity in this passage. To begin with, it's, our, it's a personal appeal, and that's our first heading with two more to come, a personal appeal. In verse 1, Paul gets personal. He says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you. That personal appeal is still ringing in the air when the big application arrives in verse 3. Paul is begging his readers to make every effort to maintain unity. When was the last time you said to someone, I beg you to do this, or I'm begging you to do this? I can't remember when I last made a request with that kind of personal force behind it. Paul is using high-intensity language because unity among God's people is important to him personally. In verse 1, Paul reminds his readers that he's a prisoner. And we know that one of his imprisonments, probably the one he's mentioning in verse 1, was actually caused by his desire for unity among God's people. At the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he arrived in Jerusalem with a large sum of money. It was money he'd collected from churches in faraway cities such as Thessalonica and Corinth, cities hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. The Christians in those faraway churches were mainly Gentiles, non-Jews, who had nothing in common with the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem apart from their shared faith in Messiah Jesus. In Romans 15, Paul says, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there, for Macedonia, that's the churches in what's now northern Greece, and Achaia, churches in southern Greece, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Think about that. That's mainly Gentile Christians handing over chunks of their income to be taken by Paul across the Mediterranean Sea to Jewish Christians they've never met before in Jerusalem to help those Jewish Christians who were suffering in poverty at that time. It was a remarkable demonstration of the unity of Gentiles and Jews in the early church. But that display of unity led to Paul's imprisonment, we discover in the book of Acts. When he arrived in Jerusalem, some of his opponents there started a riot, which resulted in Paul being arrested by the Roman authorities. The point is, if it wasn't for Paul's bridge building between Gentile Christians and Jewish believers in Jesus, he wouldn't have been in Jerusalem, and so he wouldn't have been arrested. His imprisonment was the outcome of his longing for unity among God's people. Now, that imprisonment lasted for several years as Paul went from one prison to another, first in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea, then in Rome. And many Bible commentators think Paul wrote this letter, the book of Ephesians, during that long imprisonment, probably during the Roman part of it, judging by various clues in the letter. 
If that's right, it would explain why Paul mentions his prisoner status there in verse 1. Paul's readers would have known those biographical details. If they didn't know them already, they would hear about them from the trusted courier who had carried Paul's letter to them. So they would have known Paul was in chains because of his eagerness to maintain unity among God's people, unity in the church. Paul's chains were a painful souvenir of his commitment to unity. They were evidence that Paul had walked the walk himself as well as now talking the talk in this passage. Paul's imprisonment shows that trying to bridge the gap between divided people groups can sometimes be dangerous. Non-Christians and sometimes immature Christians on either side of the divide don't like to see the divide being bridged. But Paul describes himself very peacefully in verse 1 as the prisoner in the Lord. His imprisonment didn't take Jesus by surprise. It took place in the Lord, which means in line with Jesus' purposes. Earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, God works out everything in keeping with the purpose of his will. Everything. And that included his own imprisonment. He was a prisoner in the Lord. God's sovereignty encourages us to do hard, necessary things, trusting in the glorious final outcome we've been promised when Jesus returns. And one of those hard, necessary things is maintaining unity among God's people. We've seen how <clears throat> Paul's appeal is personal, but it's also practical, and that's our second heading, a practical appeal. A practical appeal. Before Paul speaks about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in verse 3, he sets out several character traits in verse 2. Humility, gentleness, and patience. He speaks about bearing with one another in love. It makes sense that all those character traits come before the appeal for unity, because without those God-given character traits, it's almost impossible to maintain unity. In 2016, before the Trump versus Clinton presidential election, Emmanuel Presbyterian Church held a congregational forum. <clears throat> Emmanuel Presbyterian Church is a gospel-preaching church that meets about 50 blocks north of here in uh, Morningside Heights. At the forum, two members of the church, one a Republican and one a Democrat, spoke about how they were planning to vote in the election and why. They then answered questions from the pastor, from each other, and finally from the congregation. Charlie Drew, who was the pastor of Emmanuel at that time, wrote an article about that forum afterwards. He said in the article that the two church members he chose to represent the Republican side and the Democrat side were, quote, people of character and grace. People of character and grace. In other words, he chose verse 2 people. People he knew would display humility, 
gentleness, patience and love. Those two people prayed with each other before the event happened. They told each other what they were planning to say. And so, with those people chosen, it's not a surprise that the event turned out very smoothly and was a force for unity instead of division. 2016 was a year of political frenzy. It was a year when the outrage on social media was so hot it could power your grill. But by all accounts, that forum at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church was a calm and edifying evening. One person commented to Charlie Drew afterwards, I can't overstate how much I would recommend workshops like this in a church setting. Another person commented, what I found comforting was knowing that I could voice my thoughts and even if someone disagreed with me, I could still find them post-election and hug them. The church truly is my family. Those comments show that verse 2 isn't a piece of first century religious idealism with no place in the modern world. No, verse 2 was demonstrated in 2016 during a feverish season 50 blocks north of here at that congregational forum. Humility, gentleness, patience and love are the kind of things we happily approve of when we hear about them sitting down in a church service. Humility, yes. Gentleness, you bet. Patience, I'm all for it. Love, of course. But if we're honest, those things aren't always easy to implement. Paul talks about bearing with one another in love in verse 2, or as some translations say, putting up with one another in love. I rather like that alternative translation, putting up with one another. That's what we need to do to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We need to learn to put up with one another. It won't always be easy, but it goes with our calling. It's part of what it means to keep the train of our life on the tracks of our calling. Brett McCracken, who works for the Gospel Coalition, has written a book about church life titled Uncomfortable. It has an excellent subtitle, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. Here's a quote from the book. For too long, the consumer logic of Christian culture has been Find a church that meets your needs. But this model doesn't work. Not only is it coldly transactional, it's also anti-gospel. A true gospel community is about pushing each other forward in holiness and striving together for the kingdom. Those interested only in their comfort need not apply. Being the church is difficult. End quote. Speaking personally, I love church life. I'm deeply grateful to God for the unity we've enjoyed at Good Shepherd for the past five and a half years since the church was planted. But it hasn't always been easy. Brett McCracken is right. Church life can sometimes be uncomfortable and awkward. But it's worth persevering with. The discomfort of Doing verse 2 in practice is far, far better than the pain of disunity when verse 2 just isn't happening. 
it's worth asking, are there ever times when Christians shouldn't put up with one another? Putting it differently, are there times when it's right to take offence at another church member instead of just quietly forgiving them? The answer is yes, sometimes it is right to take offence and to take the matter further. But even then, it's possible to do that in a way that preserves the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Matthew 18, Jesus sets out a step-by-step process. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I hope we won't ever need to go through those steps here at Good Shepherd. And yet if we do, if we do, you can see how that procedure outlined by Jesus would keep a potentially fiery dispute contained so that it doesn't disturb the peace that should be in place in any Christian community, according to verse 3. But that procedure in Matthew 18 is for serious cases. Most offences should just be eaten, if you see what I mean. Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, It is to a person's glory to overlook an offence. And one thing that should make us quick to do that is God's attitude to our offences. Christians know that our God has not held a grudge against us. Far from it. He sent his son Jesus into this world to live the life we couldn't live and die the death we should have died. Jesus took all our offences onto himself when he died on the cross and he received the punishment for them in our place. But that's not all. As amazing and extraordinary as it is, that's not all. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you'll know from your own experience that God is slow to anger. Just as we heard in our congregational reading from Psalm 103, God is slow to anger. You'll know from your experience that it is possible to grieve God, as the Bible says. And yes, he does sometimes discipline his wayward children, as the Bible says, like a loving parent. But what I'm sure you've discovered from your own experience, if you've been a Christian for a long time, is that God is, is slow to do those things. He's slow to be grieved, to become angry. He's not a God who rushes to discipline his wayward children. He puts up with us. When we sincerely ask him to forgive us, he forgives us. Even if it's the thousandth time we've asked for his forgiveness and prayed for his help in resisting sin. In his great love, God puts up with us. And so he's not asking too much when he asks us to put up with one another. It's time for us to move on to the third feature of Paul's appeal for unity. We've seen that it's a personal appeal and a practical appeal. It's also a persuasive appeal. And that's our third and final heading, a persuasive appeal. 
Something you might have already noticed from verse 3 is that unity isn't something to be attained, it's something to be maintained. The unity of the Spirit is already there. It's already in place, and our role is to maintain it. This point that real Christians are already united by the Spirit is a persuasive reason for us not to be divisive because there's nowhere for us to go. If you have a beef with another real Christian and you don't want that grievance to end positively, you prefer to exist in a state of ongoing division, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? It's true. You could join a different local church if there's another gospel proclaiming church within reach, but that won't work. Because although real Christians do belong to different local churches, we belong to the same universal church. So if a Christian leaves a church to get away from someone who's in it, they won't succeed, spiritually speaking, in getting away from that person they have a beef with because they both still belong to the same universal church. And as we saw in last week's passage, God wants Christians throughout his universal church to come alongside one another. Doing that is how we come to know the love of Christ, which can't be fully known in all its globe-spanning dimensions. There's simply nowhere for divisively-minded Christians to go, spiritually speaking, if they want to stay Christian. That's why Paul lists all those ones in verses 4, 5, and 6. If there were two bodies, two bodies of Christ, then a divisively-minded Christian could go to the other one. But there's not. There's one. If there were two spirits, then a divisively-minded Christian could relate to God the Father through an alternative spirit. But there's just one. If there were two hopes, then a divisively-minded Christian could look forward to a different eternity. But there's just one eternal hope. The same with verse 5. If there were two lords, if there were two faiths, if there were two baptisms, and verse 6. If there were two fathers. But there aren't. There's only one of all those things. So the unity of God's people is already in place. It's our role to maintain it so that what is actually true is properly expressed to a watching world. It's our job to maintain it so that what is actually true, spiritually true, is properly expressed and exhibited to a watching world. And if you are a non-Christian person here today, you're not yet following Jesus yourself, we're very glad to have you with us. We hope you do see a loving unity among us that encourages you to explore our message further for yourself. We want you to believe that message and come in and join us and receive the eternal life God offers through his son Jesus. 
Paul ends the passage with a vision of God the Father, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And in our first Bible reading today, we heard a kind of parallel to what Paul is telling us in this passage. We heard Joseph tell his 11 brothers as they went back to their father Jacob in Canaan, he told them, don't quarrel on the way. If you know the Joseph story, you'll know that those 12 brothers did not find it easy to get along with one another, to say the least. But they had the same father, Jacob. And as Joseph sends them back to get Jacob and bring, them to be, bring him to be with them in Egypt, he gives those departing brothers that instruction. Don't quarrel along the way. Through today's Bible passage from Ephesians, it's as if our brother, Jesus, spiritually he's our brother, we're told, in the book of Romans. It's as if he is telling us through his messenger, the Apostle Paul, as we go on our way towards God the Father, who will be with forever, it's as if Jesus is saying to us, don't quarrel along the way. Let's pray together for God's help now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that picture in the Old Testament, Joseph telling his brothers not to quarrel along the way as they went towards their common father. We have you as our father. And as we go through this life, we are heading towards you to be with you forever. Help us, Heavenly Father, by the power of your spirit, not to quarrel along the way. Help us as far as it depends on us to seek peace with one another. For Jesus' sake, amen.